Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Hey, motherfucker. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to episode 13 of the Point 10 podcast. Christmas time is in the air with a massive snowstorm bearing down on the Midwest. And so, you know, we're here to talk about the original Die Hard. I'm Derek Gottlieb and joining us today is the world's leading expert on this particular movie, Emily Harrell. So welcome, Emily, and Merry Christmas to you. It's so nice to see you. Yeah, happy holidays. Long time no see. (laughs) Seriously. And in this particular little conversation, we get to talk about one of the greatest Christmas movies, kind of uncontroversially, of all time. Yeah, no question. Nobody's arguing about it on Reddit. Definitely (laughs) one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. And I feel very privileged personally to be here with such an expert on Die Hard. I don't know, I literally don't know anyone who has seen this movie as many times as you have. Can you, I, it's too much I to wouldn't ask. call myself an expert, maybe a Die Hard fan. <laughs> that was a terrible joke. I'll stop. Uh, I did, I did tell you when we recently spoke that... <laughs> That I've seen this movie in the triple digits, but oh, I did not caveat that with how many times I've fallen asleep to watching this movie. So I've not watched <laughs> this movie all the way through a hundred times, but uh, the first 45 you know. minutes, though, woo! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you remember the experience of sort of falling in love with this movie? What is it about this movie that, like, every time it's on, you'll just sit down and watch it? Uh, there's just so many rewatchable moments in the movie. You sit down and the moment pulls you in and then you're locked in for the rest of the movie. Um, I feel that way about, uh, you know, a lot of action movies from this time period, uh, political thrillers, things like that, because of the ability to just sit down and it just sucks you in and, uh, and just retells you that story over and over again. Um, I've been watching action movies since I was a really, really young kid. My dad thought it was a good idea to expose me to violence, I guess, at a really, really young age. (laughs) Uh, I remember watching Red Dawn with him and it being, uh, a pivotal moment in my life. Really? For better or for worse. Yes. I was nine years old. (laughs) I will never forget that. But, you know, that's like the dark side of this. And I, I would say that he did indoctrinate me with the love of, uh, of action movies. And um, I, I really appreciate this particular genre of action movie, which Die Hard sort of led the charge on, which is the, you know, hesitant hero. Like, he's not, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, he's he's not perfect. He's not invincible, but uh, and you know, he is unbreakable in some ways. So you can just get behind somebody like that and relate to them, I guess. So what about you? Why do you love Die Hard? That is fantastic. I mean, like, I barely remember. I it feels like Die Hard has been around since I've been around, which is appropriate because the movie, like the movie, came out when I was eight. I couldn't have seen it before I was like eleven or twelve. It is definitely in for me right. the 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 genre of like the sleepover movie of like like the sort of action movie that like we would have rented from a video store in order to sort of like eat a lot of pizza and fall asleep to. And then obviously it's been on TBS or TNT on steady rotation sort of ever since I love, let me just also say that I'm very glad to know that you a very fine person were also exposed to action movies at a very young age. It makes me feel a lot better about watching all of the sh- movies that we do for this podcast. While my two year old is sitting like right next to me, <laughs> she, I don't think understands what's going on, but you know, I try to like turn the screen away a little bit, you know, when the when the real violence sort of comes. And anyway, she's got Coco Melon or whatever. But like in either case, she's definitely getting exposed as well. Just subtly, subtly. Subtly, exactly. She needs to pick up those uh those values at an early age. You're absolutely right too that this movie set a certain kind of template. There it, it's like a joke in Hollywood about how like people keep trying to pitch die hard in an x not a big building but in a plane like executive decision or whatever so like uh for a particular kind of movie this is really the pivot point so i think it's especially funny how explicitly die hard is like playing on old western cowboy movie tropes here like he's roy rogers uh that's a very interesting choice too when hans gruber just gives him john wayne which you would expect this to take and like bruce willis is just i like the sequence which is a sort of like a great and sarcastic line i don't know what do you what do you make of the whole thing do you have like a do you have a massive theory of die hard uh beyond the rewatchable moments (laughs) I, i i don't know what kind of question that is i just like that came out of nowhere I think I know what you mean. Uh, I definitely think this movie is meta in some ways. It mm-hmm. it makes fun of itself in several ways. It references other movies and builds on other movies in mm-hmm. subtle moments, but also in these, you know, more obvious moments of the Roy Ro- Rogers, John Wayne um, commentary. And I, I think... Mm-hmm. This, even though maybe if you don't have the background on Roy Rogers and John Wayne and kind of the difference and it, if you do, you sort of get those undertones of, oh, this is not our standard golden boy hero. He's not our um, typical, you know, person in this role. He is different. He's a little bit flashier. He's, uh, yeah, got his own flair on things. Um, so I think it's, it's really trying to drive home that, uh, that hesitant hero or, or that he's a different type of hero, I guess. Hmm. Interesting. I like what stands out to me on the rewatch. I mean, this, when we started this podcast, this movie 
and Total Recall are like the two that immediately sort of jumped to mind as, as ones that I like. This is a movie that I have not only enjoyed watching, but have also thought about an inordinate amount. I love this. Like, it's important that this movie is taking place or takes place. This movie was released in 1987 and like the politics of the time period are really sort of coming through in a huge way for me. So this is before the end of the Cold War. But at the same time, we definitely don't need to get into all the sort of like financial geopolitics of uh the, the fact that the, that Nakatomi Plaza, that this L.A. landmark is owned by a Japanese corporation, that the sort of like the Japanese boss is uh, is a sort of neo-imperialist figure. Hans Gruber like explicitly like makes reference to the where he gets his suits tailored and and says the awesome line about how like Yasser Arafat also gets his suits there so like you've got this like nice little play about like oh everybody who like is a heavy hitter in world politics regardless of their ideology regardless of whether they're like striving for like capitalist domination or whatever freedom fighters or whatever everybody gets their suits tailored in the same place a nice little uh uh apolitical kind of thing uh but there's also like that relates in a big way it feels like to me to the uh john mcclain holly Gennaro romance story like i don't here's a here's a thing that i saw on the rewatch that i did not remember being such a big part of it i didn't remember this is a crazy thing to say i didn't remember that bruce willis's john mcclain has kids who feature kind of prominently in uh the movie in a later i know i know i know that they have kids i know that like the i i know that like the family schism is a big sort of like part of this i just forgot that like the media dude richard thornburg or whatever you know uses them as sort of like this melodramatic tear-jerking piece in a way that's very emotionally manipulative and very sort of like harmful to those kids that you know another reason that everybody wants to kill that character that's like I was going to give you a hard time for forgetting about, you know, the sequels later on uh, that feature the kids. So, of course, exactly. This movie is nice and self unlike some other movies that we sort of like Lethal Weapon is like this, too, in some ways. It's like it's clearly it wasn't aiming to start a franchise. So the movie itself, the first one is nice and self-contained. Uh, you can talk about it without any of those. It, it's more difficult to do that with some others. The Matrix is one of those. The Terminator movies is, are one of those. It seems like they had an idea that there was like a bigger picture here that was going to, you know, extend. It's this one. It's easier to talk about just Die Hard or just Leave a Weapon and then leave the sequels out of it. So yes, I was not thinking of the sequels when I uh, when I was making that point about forgetting the kids. Okay, but but back to your point. I okay. So first, uh, you're talking about the like political mm-hmm. subtext of the time. I thought you were going to go in the direction of talking about how uh, the reference to the Western movies is clearly a reference to colonialism and and you know moving in on territory and and that's mimicked in uh, the Nakatomi Corporation, like you're saying, a yep. Japanese company setting up in LA. Um, but you were going in direction of family and the, or the love story, I guess. I want to hear more about what you're thinking. (laughs) Well, those two things are really related. I think that like, so 
What's interesting about cowboy movies and actually sort of like historical, like white masculine, more the narrative, more the narrative genre of like Shane, of uh, of sort of classic Western tropes, John Wayne movies, etc., is that, you know, there is this hesitant hero kind of figure. Okay, so obviously in movies made for American audiences, the fact that we're dealing with sort of like a colonial power horning in on uh, other people's territorial claims in a way that will end up genociding them in various ways is not the message that the movie sends. Rather, we have these bold pioneers, which are always framed as sort of like, you know, families just trying to make good through their own like sweat and hard work. Don't worry about where the land comes from kind of thing. Uh, and so like part of the pioneering kind of spirit, I guess, is that like you're trying to move civilization embodied in this family unit westward into literally hostile territory. And so but because the the movie focuses on the experience of this, uh, what is really sort of land grabbing imperialistic power family like they're the ones who are very conscious of the fact that they're exposed in again hostile territory uh and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about sort of like a johnson county war type of thing where like it's it's you know homesteaded ranchers versus cowboys in uh one way or another or whether we're talking about like good old uh stereotypes of native americans uh in which the main threat to the family is uh something like savagery or something like that. The hesitant hero is on the side of civilization and the family and whatever has to use sort of extraordinarily visually appealing violence in order to make this family safe. And in the reconstitution of this family unit or in the protection of this family unit through the demonstration of this violence, the, main character also makes himself ineligible for participation in the civilization that he has uh, protected. Like, he can't be... It's like he's a civilizational fan. He can't be part of the thing uh, that he's saving because of his insane violence that is necessary to uh, protect it. You know, so, like, that's that's a story of especially Shane, but all those other movies of which like, you know, <clears throat> somebody like sorted past comes through in the clutch to kill everybody that needs killing. And then like is begged to stay, but he's like, no, this place isn't for me. I've got to go right off into the sunset or whatever. Like that's sort of the story. So, but so like in that narrative, you've got a lot of shoring up of, uh, of simultaneously like what an idealized family unit is and also what idealized masculinity, especially violent masculinity is and how those two sort of uh, relate to each other. So where I was going with the family piece was very much that like it's 1987. The main thing about Holly Gennaro, about Bruce Willis's wife, is that she left to take this opportunity uh, with the Nakatomi Corporation. She needed to like that's a decision that in the 1980s is still like we're what 10 years following sort of the emergence slash heyday of second wave feminism in which like uh the idea that like women ought to have equal places in the workplace like the idea that a career woman is not something to be looked down upon is still 
very much fresh. So she has made sort of the career woman choice. That's the conflict that she has with Bruce Willis right away. She had to move to LA to take this job. He's representing himself as sort of like a white working class cop uh, who expects his wife to be in the home, being a wife, all that kind of stuff. That's the tension in the in the first fight that they have. And she's like, I had to I had to do this for my career. I couldn't have it both ways. I know exactly what your idea of uh, our marriage should be like. Our marriage should be. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's a that's that uh, great classic line. She has to use her maiden name, not because she's interested in getting divorced, but because also that's how like. Japanese culture would uh, like would expect her to be like, or that's her implication in that uh, fight scene. So that's a little bit of a weirdness that we don't necessarily need to get into how like these two different cultures represent sort of traditional family unit in uh, different ways. But it's important that like, it strikes me as important that the same that uh, the Nakatomi Corporation owns this building now in downtown LA, Japanese cars are, you know, on the rise in the United States. Japanese electronics are on the rise in the United States. And also, this corporation, figured very paternalistically, can give Holly Gennaro something that sort of the traditional family unit in the form of sort of Bruce Willis's masculinity cannot give her. Bruce Willis needs her to be a homebody. She would like to be a professional woman. That is what this sort of interloper foreign corporation is offering her. And then it just turns out that Takagi gets shot in the head in the first half an hour of the movie. And like you need like, wouldn't it be nice to have like a white blue collar ultraviolet hero to come save you in that uh, kind of thing? So like. All the violence in the movie ends up redeeming this sort of uh, character. Be like, yes, yes, yes. I see that like workplace equality is important, but also, you know. <laughs> yeah, you need someone to protect you. I think it's interesting that that is the case. But, you know, when John McClane comes in here to save the day, he doesn't know the plan right away. He does, you know, he's figuring it out as it goes along, but, you know, he has no idea what their plans are and he's just trying to save people. He's just trying to save his wife mm-hmm. um, and and kill the bad guys, quote unquote. Like, uh, he doesn't know, you know, the past of the corporation and if they're good guys or bad guys, he doesn't know the terrorists or if they're good guys or bad guys. He just knows sort of the black and white and is figuring it out, like I said, as he goes. Um, But he doesn't ask really, like he's not asking these questions at the start when he starts killing people. And um, I think that also reflects that sort of blue collar um, come in and just be the muscle because it's not him being like a detective, it's him being a cop. And, (laughs) you know, he jumps to conclusions about the fact that they're terrorists. Well, I mean, are they terrorists? Like, it seems to me they just want to steal a bunch of money. Like, uh, and so uh, I think the way that that element fits into what you're saying, this narrative, 
I think it adds an, another interesting layer to it, I guess. That's really fascinating as well. Like the, the I, I had never, before you brought this up, thought of John McClane as jumping to conclusions in particular. I mean, it's a movie, and so it's leading, it seems to be leading us directly, like, he is he's just sort of silent, staying out of sight and watching. He knows that there's armed people in the buildings, but it's not until Takagi gets shot that like he is suddenly like, okay. And then it's literally like it seems like he recognizes that the stakes are like kill or be killed, and that's that's what he's interested in. But he does, as you note, buy into the thing that Hans Gruber and everybody is selling which is which is another which is related also to that thing about like the london tailoring that everybody seems to have on their uh suits hans gruber represents his uh his little organization is like i forget they're freedom fighters from somewhere they're supposed to be east european maybe or eastern east german maybe i can't remember where like where exactly they german autumn from. there's a big bunch right, right? or yeah. oh yeah that's right that's the name of the organization but there's there's dude like they speak german uh, but there's also a dude speaking Italian at one point. It's very odd. Like the this was, anyway, he's like, here are our demands. We want to release our freedom fighters around the world. Blah 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 blah. And it all just turns out to be bullshit. I mean, we we know this in the audience uh, from right away as they're going for the vault. And he tells Takagi like straight up before he shoots him that that this is the deal. So going along with that whole, you know, everybody's suits are made in London. There's this overwhelming sort of like sense of cynicism, like political, the idea of aspiring to a better world, like liberating the masses, achieving some kind of justice that isn't possible within a, a capitalist system. If we're thinking that that's who the terrorists are fighting against, that's all bullshit. It's all just a cover story for like what everyone wants in the 80s, which is just money. Just greed is good. Ideology is just a tool to use. It's just a grift, essentially, is uh, what he's doing. So like it's this very cynical take on politics in general until you run into the blue collar, ultraviolent hero who has something to live for, like good old American ideals values. by which exactly yeah. values which here just means you know craftiness hard work improvisation and like an undying love for your estranged wife yeah you said it <laughs> <laughs> oh it's a little too real you know yeah yeah so let us appreciate some of the technical aspects of this movie some like like this movie is two hours long, but it doesn't waste a second. I, like the first minute of this movie is just bonkers in terms of of how quickly it establishes everything. It's just John McClane is on a plane. Dude in the seat next to him is like, I can tell you don't like to fly, blah, blah. He's like, I've been doing this for nine years. You know, fists with your toes thing, which turns out to be very important in getting John McClane's feet all cut up. Uh Plane lands. John McClane tries to get something out of the overhead compartment. Man sees the shoulder ho holster, and he's like, and and he gets the the like worried look on his face. And John McClane and Bruce Willis just has the opportunity to be like, "Don't worry about it. I'm a cop." P.S. I've been a cop for eleven years. Takes down this massive teddy bear, and then tries to get off the plane. But on his way out, just in case this is not obvious to everyone in the theater who is looking at Bruce Willis's handsome face and like 
cutesy little like lips pursing kind of thing, uh, somehow has to squeeze by a flight attendant who has put herself in the aisle for no reason that I can tell, who just like straight up eye fucks him on the way out of that thing. So you're like, oh, okay. So like Bruce Willis is a cop uh, and he's sexually attractive. Got it. I understand everything that I need to know about uh, Bruce Willis's character. Also, the most, you know, from a like, let's appreciate 1987 kind of moment, when he pulls down that big teddy bear, I was like, what a what a humane era in which to fly domestically. Can you imagine somebody trying to put that fucking teddy bear in an overhead compartment today? That shit would get impounded by a gate agent like immediately on almost every airline. Frontier, forget about it. Maybe Alaska yeah. is what I think. It costs you fifty dollars to check that thing. You, you don't. 100%. You can't have another carry on and have that teddy bear. <laughs> can you imagine, but, yeah, can you imagine I, like being a passenger <laughs> and opening up that thing and being like, "Who the fuck put this teddy bear up here? <laughs> I have all of the clothes for my trip in this bed." Anyway. Uh yeah, uh, and to your larger point here, I, in my opinion. The plot devices in this movie, like, are pretty expertly done. Like, they don't stand out too much in that it's like, oh, this is literally just a plot device to get to the background. Um, like, if you were watching a Hallmark Christmas movie right now, you, For you know, are going to notice that. This is like, it's just baked into the movie and... Um, and like you're saying, it's just scene to scene to scene. Um, I think the speed of this movie and most movies around this time are excellent. Like, it's not too much. It's not too many things going on at once. You're not jumping back and forth a million times. Um, you're not being overloaded by everything that's on your screen. Uh, like, your your ADD is, like, tucked in and ready to enjoy the movie, you know, um, I, I really, really appreciate that about this movie. Yeah. There's like, I, I, the, the comment on the pacing being expertly done is really like the action scenes are kinetic, but also suspenseful. So it's not just blowing stuff up, but like you have a, I mean, the, the fact that like, the fact that this movie features, you know, glass being shot out and then Bruce Willis's feet getting all cut up is something that you don't really tend to see in action movies all that often. Like people get like whatever dirty and like appear on screen with blood on them, but there isn't a real sense that they get hurt in order to, you know, earn that sort of bloodiness and dirtiness. And this movie is definitely not that. Bruce Willis is vulnerable the entire time, pretty intensely. He gets injured a lot, which you would expect if you were doing all the shit that Bruce Willis is doing, flying off roofs, getting shot at, running across broken glass, barefoot, etc. cetera. Uh, and yet, so like, there's that kind of reality to the movie. It doesn't rush itself through the like sort of gunfire scenes. There's a real sense that he might get shot at any moment, even though you sort of know that he won't. And like the scene in which he ends up shooting the dude through the table upwards is like the dude is like pursuing him across that tabletop is a perfect example of that. It's a little bit drawn out. You know, the guy gets the stupid line about like, don't hesitate or like next time you get a... Uh, a chance to kill somebody, don't hesitate. And then Bruce Willis 
kills him and all that kind of stuff. But like, there's a lot of lead up where like you're worried for uh, Bruce Willis and the scenes that are not action all serve some kind of larger character development purpose. I know that you've seen this movie a million times, but like one of the things <laughs> that struck me this time anew, I should say, is uh, the character of Ellis. What do you make of him both as sort of like a representation of the 80s and as like a foil to uh, Bruce Willis's character? Oh, Ellis. Uh, before we talk about Ellis, I, yes. I do want to add to what you're saying. I think that beyond that, beyond the scenes that surround the action, really building out the set and the story, the scenes with the action do so as well. Like Like you were saying with the broken glass and it's showing that he's not invincible, but... I mean, the scene that you're referencing where he's under that crazy conference table, like, yeah, uh, very you know, 80s. you're very 80s, but also it's like the whole room has these Japanese motifs, like the whole floor does. Um, and I think it's it's building this setting of, you know, the talks that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. Moving on to Ellis. Ellis is a trip. <laughs> But he yes. is, <laughs> he's great. Uh, I think he takes that foil sort of to the extreme. That And I he has that perfect quote in there, you know, business is business. Uh, I, use, I use a fountain pen and you use a machine gun. Like uh, he leans in so hard and it's, he's like so self-aware of his, corruption and of the game that you know but he's also totally not uh aware of other people i guess like uh um he you know assumes that he's gonna jump in and talk to gruber and save the day it could have been the coke talking but also (laughs) i think maybe he this character um isn't able to empathize and read people as well as he thinks he can. Um, and I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, but yeah, I do think, uh, in terms of foiling Bruce Willis's character, uh, you know, he is the businessman, the white collar guy. He isn't capable of saving the day because, you know, he totally misses the mark. Um, and I think they do a great job of incorporating that character. I mean, this movie could exist without Ellis, but it it just adds to it to have him there. A hundred percent. There's like, okay, so adding Ellis in, there's really like three competing visions for, let's say, like masculine institutions there to sort of complement Holly Gennaro. There's like you've got like the you've got the you've got Mr. Takagi and the Nakatomi Corporation in general, who's sort of like uh, offering her employment on equal terms as long as whatever. Uh, there's Bruce Willis's character who wants something very traditional in the home and is also very relatedly capable of using intense violence to make sure that he protects the like the vulnerable people in his orbit. And then there's fucking Ellis, who's something else entirely like 
it, the first time we see him, he's trying to sleep with Holly Gennaro, offering mulled wine and a roaring fire and whatever. And she is not into it. Like she might be angry at Bruce Willis's character because like they have different ideas of what their marriage should be, but she is attracted to him. <laughs> she is not into Ellis. It seems to me that's, that's uh, my read. And Ellis, like that's our first uh, sort of intimation of how little he is able to read people. He thinks he's the most fucking charming dude that there has ever been. And he's like, well, he's whatever. Uh, this is also something that I totally did not pick up on until significantly after the first time that I saw this. I remember like Ellis was just sort of there in the movie. He plays that little plot role where he gives John McClane away and therefore puts Holly in danger because of his sort of overconfidence. But like uh, I didn't, pick up on any of the stuff about him i i didn't pick up on the fact that he was doing coke that like takagi walks in on him doing coke because i was like 12 or whatever when i saw it the first time i didn't pick up on the fact that he's really trying to hit on holly and that holly's not into it none of that stuff uh came through so he strikes me now i would uh, i would ahead. give ellis credit though i'll give ellis credit though he actually doesn't give holly and john's relationship away he That's says right. John McLean is my guest at the party and uh, you know, so uh, yep, you're right. You're right. Ellis That's the me. worst. I, it's he Ellis. does have some self-awareness. He doesn't put Holly in danger. He's into her, you know, anyway, sorry. Keep specific, going. No, no, this is great. Like he, he has a, he has a, a very specific idea of how they are going to get out of the situation by which he seems to mainly mean how he is going to get out of the situation. For him, the game seems to be like, let's get everybody with the guns away from everybody else and end a hostage situation, which, again, in fairness to Ellis, is probably the smartest, like, tack. Like, that's the one that doesn't involve everyone dying. Uh, whereas Bruce Willis's character is much more like, we're going to solve this hostage crisis by me killing all the bad guys. That's how this like really ends. And it is naive to think that there is another way out of this. Uh, but I, it seems to matter. Like when Ellis is like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go negotiate with Hans Gruber and I'm going to tell them who John McClane is. He's like, he's like Hans, Bubby, <laughs> I'm your white knight. And I'm like, we have a character, John McClane, who's literally trying to be the white knight for Holly Gennaro. So it's it, like Ellis is like, I've, I'm going to solve this problem for you, Hans Gruber, who is the terrorist. And that's the moment in which you're like, God damn it, Ellis, please stop this. Ellis's character just also reminds me of every finance bro I've ever known. Who's like, ah, because I can do this one thing and operate in this one world. It means that I am obviously qualified to do everything and slash great at everything. I don't know if that's been your experience. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use my manipulation tactics. This is for you, you know? <laughs> it's straight. Like, but, this is like, that character was much more funny before Donald Trump ran for president, is what I want to say. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. You know, I, not to take this down that path too far, but I think that Donald Trump thinks he's John McClane, but he's actually Ellis. That's the smartest thing that has ever been said on this show by like <laughs> by by a good country mile. That is the perfect way to symbolize that kind of thing. Thinks he's John Wayne, thinks he's John McClane, is actually Ellis. 
God yeah, damn. and I would say that's true of a number of politicians, but also I would say a number of politicians also, and not just politicians, but, um, you know, people who are driving like capitalism in America are Ellis and self-aware that they're Ellis, you know? Yeah, that's also true. It's probably like, it's simultaneously better and worse to be self-aware Ellis's, I feel like. Once you've made that moral comp, like, it seems to be a real key factor of Ellis's psychology that he is able to think that he's the good guy slash the savior. It's something else entirely if if he's just like, fuck it, <laughs> fuck it. What's the point of being the good guy? Cynicism is a political emotion. Despair is a political emotion. Anyway, we've strayed a little bit uh, from the movie. The scene in which uh, <laughs> I think my favorite part of that scene in which Ellis ends up offering up John McClane or tries to do the negotiating with uh, Hans is, is is where he whatever asks for a Coke. He's like, well, now that like we're talking man to man. Can somebody go get it like this man with a fucking machine gun and some sort of opening at Coke? It was very, that's very hilarious to me. Yeah, hilarious, but I also think it's symbolic. You know, A, why isn't it liquor? And B, like Coke is an American institution and it's, you know, Ellis is this kind of a, save the day or he thinks he's a save the day all american hero so why not coca-cola absolutely there's there's a couple of other things that we absolutely need to get into we talked about gender politics and uh and sort of whatever foreign corporations taking over uh, like that kind of assault on america there's two other prominent bad guys in this movie that aren't the terrorists uh the FBI is one of them, and Richard Thornburg, the media, is one of them. These There's like big, big commentary going on here. It takes, I, I had forgotten this, it takes 45 minutes for Reginald Vell Johnson to even show up in uh, the movie. I, I In my memory, I think that of him as like this integral part. It's the oddest sort of buddy cop movie in which the buddies don't actually ever interact with each other or like face to face until the very end of the film. But like... The relationship between John McClane and uh, Al Powell. Al Powell. Al you can Powell. call it a bromance. A bromance, even. That is certainly not too much to uh, say. The the mutual identification is powerful. Um, Powell's boss, the fucking principal from The Breakfast Club, and, uh, and, and who's playing the same role, by the way. And then the FBI, that... That whole like whose dick is bigger energy is very intense in in all that kind of uh, hierarchical situation. When the FBI shows up, it's just it's just hilarious. the The main argument seems to be who's in charge of the situation and how much firepower can we level at this building. Talk about that for a second. Uh, yeah, I think I I really love how this is presented because. There's no question that it's not hyperbolic. And I think the thing that really seals that is Agent Johnson, Agent Johnson, no relation. So it's like, this is a joke. Okay. Yes. And now we're going to have this dick measuring contest, like you say. (laughs) 
Yeah, that is a Johnson, Johnson, no relation. It's amazing. For those of our listeners who haven't seen this movie in a while, one of them is white and one of them is black. One of them is actually the one of the, the bad guys from the Goonies, the like Italian mafia family who shows up in a lot of stuff. That's a little like uh, tidbit that I sort of didn't recognize right away. Anyway, yes, it is a joke. It is 100% about who's in charge of the scene. There's some of the stuff that like that ages not poorly, but weirdly in that uh, in that thing. Like when they're, they're like, okay, bring in whatever they call it, the beast or something. And it's the, it looks like a pre-Humvee type thing. It's not very big. It's not clear how this car is going to achieve their aims. And then it gets like missiled anyway. So like, like immediately yeah but like but it it looks like like they turned the mars rover into a tank and it you're like is that even gonna get up the stairs (laughs) and which like we're laughing about it but that just shows like how much like militarized equipment has gone to cop institutions police institutions since then and how like it's not a fucking joke it's like if Nakatomi Plaza were taken over by terrorists right now, it like you would see a full scale, straight up military siege of that building, not this whatever uh, sort of tank. The other thing that happens in one of those, like the FBI is immediately like, okay, let's stop fucking around with these terrorists. We're going to like, whatever, send in the car that gets nuked. Then we're going to get a chopper on the roof. And one of the dudes, uh, again, the bad guy from the Goonies, he has a backwards hat on. He's got the headset and he's like, he's got like the M50 or whatever. He's ready to like cruise around the roof and do some actual damage. And he says something about like, boy, this is just like whatever Nam. And I'm like, oh, fuck. It, like you forget. Saigon. Yeah. We're yeah. not that far removed. We're only like a decade out of uh, the end of the Vietnam War. Just very sort of resonant for me about how like I'm thinking about like, Kathleen Ballou's Bring the War, War Home, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, like the way in which, the way in which whatever we do out there in terms of sort of foreign wars comes back to us in a variety of ways, not only in sort of like supplying uh, and training our actual sort of domestic police forces, but then also in sort of like the uh, sort of like... Um, a knee-jerk reaction to uh, to a threat. So this guy's like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to hop in a chopper and then strafe the roof, I guess, despite the fact that there's hostages in there. And he's very explicit about not giving a shit about that. That's not... So, like, another potential foil for Bruce Willis's John McClane, in which it's weird. It serves to sort of, like, launder John McClane's violence in general like he cares that there's obviously that there's uh hostages not only because his wife is there but also because he's a good guy and these other people who are willing to use exactly the same level of lethal force just don't care so like suddenly the cowboy is like the ethically non-ambiguous one who like that's the one you want you know doing all your bad guy killing for you the negotiator can't get it done the guy with the fountain pen the like the tank isn't going to get it done. The chopper, you just need, you just need yourself a Bruce Willis. Yeah, and and more than just the tank and chopper, like literal literal government agents can't get it done, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, 
I feel like there's implications there of we can't trust the author- like our authorities to get it done. We have to lean on our, you know, uh, blue collar American yeah. values. Like, yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. The 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 uh, institutional authorities are not really concerned with the actual outcome. They're concerned with you know the size of their dicks. Who is in charge? All that kind of stuff. And it, and it ultimately ends up uh, like they're self-interested and they're incompetent. Those are the two sort of like characteristics that they uh, mm-hmm. have. They're all about trying to assert their power, not trying to sort of uh, achieve the actual job. I, that's that's a really powerful thing. What do you make of the media presence here? The like Richard Thornburg character, not only sort of in the early scenes where he's trying to like get like steal the news van or whatever, but especially in the way that he is presented throughout the second half of the movie after he shows up the, at the scene of the action. Yeah. I think media does not come out of this movie unscathed. I think all of the undertones and subtexts that we're talking about with corporations, with, you know, policing and government officials with terrorism, like it, it also, media takes a hit here too in that it is just another place where people are trying to climb to the top and will step on other people to do that um and obviously the Richard Thornburg character is again a hyperbole about that the fact that he goes to uh you know Holly's house and exposes her kids and threatens the nanny Pauline with deportation um he he is made to be this this bad guy but you know what he's standing for is that you know cutthroat attitude that is part of america and making it in america it's not just the bootstraps part it's the you know who are you gonna push down in order to stand up wow that's that's very true. I love the idea that like whether you're looking at the FBI or the LAPD or uh, the media or whatever, the Nakatomi Corporation and the figure of Ellis, you just have the same sort of uh, narrative playing out over and over in which like the bad guy is the person who is only in it for himself. This is this is a recognizable type that whether we're in private business, whether we're in the media, whether we're in a sort of governmental institution uh, exists, uh, the the crowning attitude of which of whom is like, what's in it for me? How can I leverage this situation to my own advantage, regardless of uh, what the actual stakes are for anyone else? Uh, look at my hustle, by which I mean willingness to throw anyone under the bus who needs to go under the bus in order to get what I want. Again, just a super stark contrast, not only with uh, John McClane, but also, and here's a way that we have not talked about Holly Gennaro yet, with John McClane's wife, who ends up, I mean, she has that like fantastic line in the middle of the movie in which uh, she shows up at like Hans Gruber's desk and is basically like with a list of demands and he is... Uh, He asks, who put you in charge? And she's like, you did when you shot my boss. So now people are looking to me. So not only is she uh, the sort of 
representation of you know white motherhood who needs to be protected by John McClane, but she's actually a boss in her own right, which has been her point, uh, you know, in her little tete-a-tete with Bruce Willis. Holly being sort of like, okay, we have all of these people, we have all these instances in the movie of people trying to sort of assert their power and authority. Uh, We've talked about how all of those are essentially involved in some kind of dick measuring contests. And to that extent are foils for John McClane. But Holly is sort of like, she's in the same arena after Takagi gets shot, but is doing things differently. It's a different kind of foil to McClane. She definitely is. And I would add that it's even before Takagi is shot because she's the one that grabs his arm and says, no, like, don't, don't show yourself. uh, Yeah. Right. Earlier on before Gruber has identified Takagi. Um, That's right. Yeah. I think she is subtle. She represents like compromise. She, you know, is having a conversation. She seems like she is scared, but is also strong and confident. Um, And I think she represents the best leader in the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, she's not solving the larger issue of the fact that there are hostages (laughs) and, um, that they are stealing money the way that um, John McClane is. But I think in terms of all these types of characters and that we've discussed, I think she actually makes for the hero that we need in real life. You know what I mean? Uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that seems to separate her from everybody else that we're talking about who's like trying to occupy a position of leadership is that she is interested in trying to figure out what her interlocutor actually wants. Like, what is driving them? Ellis is very sure that he knows what what Hans Gruber's whole game is and that he can deliver what it is that Hans Gruber wants, which is only half right. The FBI and whatever, all of the cops essentially are also sure that they know exactly how this uh, this is going down. And Holly seems to be the one who is uh, a more attentive to people who are not just Hans Gruber or the situation in general. Her initial demand is for uh, a couch for uh, her pregnant assistant. But uh, but yeah, she's the only one like she makes her demands in terms of, you know, low to the ground issues. And in the voice of or in the position of what Hans would want. She says something like, unless you wanted to get really messy out here, I suggest you start bringing us to the bathroom. Not like it is our human right to be able to use the bathroom, but like you might want to avoid a mess for yourself. Perhaps you haven't thought about this, but I'm just going to suggest it kind of gently, that sort of thing. Yeah. Like you, you haven't thought through everything. Yeah, right. Exactly. Actually, um, yeah, even though he has thought through all of the rest of the plan. That's right. Um, like, ju- I, that's important. And too. all the like, covers for it. Right. 
Bruce Willis is like, you know, I'm the fly in the ointment. I'm the pain in the ass. But really, uh, I mean, and like Bruce Willis is playing the person that Hans Gruber has not counted on. But Hans Gruber has a series of plans to deal with Bruce Willis. It's just that Bruce Willis kills them all. The the idea that like, you know, what are we going to do if this hostage situation extends for multiple hours, which they've clearly planned for without ever thinking that, you know, about letting hostages use the, the restroom is something that has to be brought to his attention. That's that's interesting. Yeah, because it's not like. It's not like other movies don't include that. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah, there are other heist movies or you know, prisoner movies or uh, hostage movies. And, you know, they include stuff like that. So it is literally, yeah. I mean, we, we started this point talking about how Holly Gennaro is uh, a different kind of leader because she's able to sort of anticipate needs that other people don't know that they have yet, instead of sort of assuming that, um, that she has seen everything from the get go or like everything is happening according to her vision of it. She's sort of responsive in a way that other people aren't. But it is odd to think that, like, for Hans Gruber, who really has thought through everything, he's like, he's like, he, whatever, he's having to stand off with the cops. He's like, we knew this was a possibility. We'll just wait for the FBI because it was already planned for this. Has not <laughs> thought about what it might mean to hold hostages for a long time. Can't tell if that's a flaw in the movie or just like a flaw in. Uh, Hans's character. Um, I don't know how far you want to go into like the background of stuff. I, <laughs> I don't know how long, maybe a decade ago, I bought the like pack of diehard movies with all of the commentary and stuff. So I do know a lot yes. about the background of the movies, uh, including the fact that, uh, Bruce Willis was filming his TV show Moonlighting at the same time as yep. filming this movie and he needed to take like literal like naps uh on the set and so they would film they would like use the characters and film additional scenes including this scene of uh of Holly Gennaro and and Hans Gruber. But anyway, uh I'm interested to take this conversation about Holly to the end of the movie. Yes. Um, spoiler alert, Hans Gruber falls <laughs> off the side of the Nakatomi Plaza. And what a great scene. He does so by holding on to he's holding on to Holly's hand, yep. hanging off the side of the building. And the last piece of her that he's holding on to is this Rolex watch yes. that we're introduced to in the beginning of the movie as a reward for closing a big deal. And That's right. Ellis, Ellis is all about given this it Rolex, Rolex yes. watch. Yep. And in the final scene, Hans Gruber, she unlatches the watch. Yes. And the watch goes down the side of the building with Hans Gruber and he dies. Uh, and I feel like that is another representation of Holly's character as taking the data, making the right choices, being the leader that they need, you know, letting go of the things that aren't important, letting go of the capitalism and in no uncertain terms, saving the day and killing the, killing the bad guy. What does it mean? So like there's, there's a, 
that's that's an uh, a great way to read that scene. There's also a sort of uncomfortable gender politics way of reading that scene in which sort of like Ellis has given her something like a broy reward for like a job well done in the realm of capitalism, which is this sort of Rolex watch that symbolizes her like her success in this traditionally masculine, you know, field, right? The the traditionally masculine field that she has abandoned her working class New York cop husband in order to pursue. So like this Rolex watch is symbolic of her uh of her having succeeded in this realm being out on her own as uh a you know, an independent professional woman in the 80s, right? And it is only by releasing this symbol and being pulled back inside by uh, her working class New York cop hero erstwhile husband that the threat of terrorism to all of her co-workers is vanquished. So like, like there's another way of reading that, I guess that I'm saying that I'm like, to what extent is this a victory for Holly? There's certainly a way in which she's like, I'm going to let go. This is not symbolic. I'm letting go of material things because I don't want this. And there's another sense in which it's like, I will save everyone, let's say the nation as a whole, by resuming, by like giving up this sort of like dream of sort of the independent woman of the eighties who experiences professional success and returning to my, uh, whatever little lady experience of, you know, exactly what John McClane thinks their marriage ought to be or whatever. And, and to back that point up, you know, when Ellis first is nagging her to show John McClane the the watch, she's like, she's embarrassed by it. She's like, no, no, I'll, I'll show him later. Yes. Uh, you know, you can't tell in that moment if it's just more important for her to like be present with her estranged husband and, you know, figure out that situation or if it is embarrassment or if it is like, ooh, he doesn't really agree with these values. So I'm just not going to bring it up. Yeah. So like I like that scene was very affecting when I just uh, rewatched the movie. Like I, I read it in two ways. Like she doesn't want to shame John McClane with this showy sort of mark of her success, which really is a mark of her independence and her success in this realm. She knows like the conversation that they're going to have to have at some point uh, that they end up that they end up having in actuality, but she's not eager to sort of like throw that in his face. And the other thing that Ellis is trying to do is throw in John's face too, that he is able to give this to her, this really nice way. He's like, it's a Rolex, whatever, like this really nice uh, watch. So like, I I feel like she is trying to navigate two different threats to John McClane's masculinity, basically uh, in that moment. So like that, that just adds resonance to that like final scene of being like, fuck this watch. Yeah, I mean, she has a foot in both worlds, and that's represented across this. And that's the thing that the movie ends up not being able to tolerate, I feel like. I mean, let's say, like, the, the politics of action movies in the 80s in general. You don't get, like, 
you know, women can, you know, have their own lives and be in the workforce and whatever. But like, you know, that comes with certain dangers to like the men who might want to protect you or own you or whatever. And so like got to remain sensitive to uh, their feelings. And like a happy ending is achieved when you realize that what you really loved is, (laughs) you know, your violent protector. (laughs) That's that's a very cynical take on a movie that I very much love. Uh, yeah, you know, when we get into parsing this, that's how I feel about it, too, though. Like, I love this movie. I've seen it so many times. But um, the themes that it it drives home and, and all of that are things that I don't necessarily subscribe to. Um, yeah. But maybe I love it because it does a good job of representing them in ways that are... Uh, you know, comedy or, or hyperbole. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. No, you transition. Uh, speaking of which, uh, we haven't talked about Argyle yet. (laughs) And we would be remiss not to talk about Argyle. What's your, what's your Argyle comedy moment? I mean, comedy is what he's there for, but like, I actually, yeah. So, you know, the first times that you're watching this, he, you recognize that he sort of is this plot device, but he is this really great, fun character, and he is funny and uh, gives John McClane kind of a run for his money, and in the end has a hand in uh, helping save the day uh, as he, you know, kills the... Um, oh, I'm forgetting the actor's name, Clarence... Gilliard's mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. Uh, uh, kills him in the parking garage or, or traps him um, in the van. Yes. Anyway, um, but, you know, later, like, once you've seen it 50 times, uh-huh. yeah, it takes you see, like, the, how perceptive Argyle is. I love this about this character. Mm-hmm. He is used as a plot device to understand the relationship between John and Holly and to understand uh, how Blue Collar um, John is, but in doing so, you know, he he does it in such a way that he demonstrates himself to be uh, aware of, you know, how relationships work mm-hmm. and, you know, what m- what men like John are thinking. Yeah. Um, and he just does it in such a, a cool way. I really appreciate this character a lot. His character is great. And he's got like some of He does have not only because he plays that uh, actual role in the actual plot uh, later on, but like every time the movie needs just a, a bit of levity while stuff is blowing up, camera cuts to Argyle in the car, like talking to some girl about being like, so you're going to come over later or whatever. It's like stuff is falling down all around. Yeah. It's, amazing. it's amazing. Or like jamming to some music. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I love like what like there's this movie. Okay. Last note on this sort of like romance thing for me anyway is like, so he would like, we, just because of the way that Holly says that line about like knowing exactly what kind of, uh, what he imagines their marriage to be like, it, it makes perfect sense every other sort of instance he sees. He gets off the plane, he's walking through baggage claim, some like hot blonde woman runs past him, jumps into the arms of her boyfriend very ostentatiously and 
that's the thing that prompts them to be like, Jesus Christ, California or whatever. Can you believe this? That people are like showing affection <laughs> at the party. It's like, uh, is it he and Holly and Ellis that are sort of in the office together? And then like a couple of party goers who apparently work at the office, like barge in about to have sex or something. And then like, look all embarrassed. They're like, he is just surrounded for the first third of the movie by other people couples happily in love and it's like he's just like he just like rolls his eyes at it even though his whole sort of like purpose in going to california is to try to reunite or reconcile with uh holly Gennaro. it it starts to look a little bit more like his intention is like to club her and drag her back to his cave given like the way that he reacts to other displays of affection but like whatever that's neither here nor there that's part of his grumpiness, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And sort of built in with that is like, she went away and this is the place that she went away to. Yes. And so he is resentful of that place. And it's so different from where he is. And uh, so everything about it must be different. The values must be different, you know. Totally. And what people in LA don't get, and this is really like the huge... Uh, distinction between Ellis and McLean that is really underscored is that like uh, you, John McLean takes himself particularly seriously in a way that no one else in this movie is allowed uh, to do. Like Hans Gruber pretends to be ideologically committed to like some sort of like liberation fight, but really is in it for the money. Uh, Ellis is like, you know, Ellis initially when uh when John McClain first whatever sends Heinrich down with the ho 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 message on his uh sweatshirt, Ellis is like, what's he doing? And Holly's like, his job. And Ellis's response is, his job is three thousand miles away. There's something about like fighting evil and saving whatever innocent people that is a calling for John McClain in a way that like Ellis out in LA just can't understand. You know? Mm-hmm. Well said. <laughs> it's 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 fun. I fucking I would rewatch this movie. I like I have watched this movie for a lot of different reasons to fall asleep, to appreciate John McClain being a badass, for the witty lines, etc. But like it's only been very recently that I'm like, I just want the Ellis scenes, frankly. I want to watch this actor be like, I would like to be as unlikable as possible and see what that is like. Um, well, <laughs> you might appreciate this. So uh, something that I do know is that uh, he was asked to play someone a little, like a character that's like a little bit more straight up. Uh-huh. And he really, the the actor himself, like took it down the schmooze rabbit hole and like it. really leaned in on this. Um he was not directed to do it that way. So you can appreciate that actor and that character a little bit more. Thank you for that. That That is a legit gift to be able to be like, I am imagining this actor. I can't remember his name and I don't know that I've seen him in anything else, but like, I'm just imagining him now with the script of Die Hard in like 1985. His agent is given it to him. He's like, how do I want to play this sitting in his apartment? Let me try to deliver these lines real quickly. No, that doesn't seem right. Maybe if I just make him the smarmiest asshole that you've ever encountered in your life, that'll be, and it just, it's a perfect character decision that, uh, that actor has made. 
well done, sir, is basically what I want to say. Of all the lines in this movie, of all the scenes in this movie, what is your favorite, would you say? Oh, gosh. You know, I was not ready for that question. No um, you, you go first. What's your, what was your, what is your favorite scene? Well, there's a couple of, like the, 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 the best shot in the movie for my money is definitely the one in the air vent to come to the coast. We'll have a few laughs. That's sort of, like, it's just so iconic that I, uh, sort of can't, uh, get over it. My favorite scene probably is, uh, my favorite scene is probably whatever the beast, the tank, just getting missiled to death. I can't even remember what uh, what the computer nerd says. And the fat lady is toast or something. But I remember being like, that line delivery was insane. <laughs> but also just the entire like the amount of confidence that the uh, that the movie invites us to have in this tank solving the problem and then the quickness and the fieriness with which that comes to an end. Just chef's kiss is what I think. (laughs) Okay. Chef's kiss. All right. You know, I am not sure that my favorite scene would be like, you know, this is the pure representation of this movie. I definitely, absolutely love the opening scene with Argyle. You sort of get the like bad sunset filter. Yeah. Uh, uh, the He's sitting up front in the limo um, and their whole interaction is just, I, I appreciate the character building. I appreciate like sort of the human behavior aspect of it. And uh, you know, it's, it's funny and serious all at the same time. So yeah, maybe that one. Um, and then uh, maybe uh, honorable mention would be the, the when the elevator dings and it opens up and, you know, the gray yes. sweatshirt says, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. And he's got the Christmas hat on. I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, just kind of the silliness, like, how did you think of that? Yeah, exactly. And why is this dude wearing a gray sweatshirt? Why isn't he wearing tactical gear? Right. And, like, you know, it's just, it's great. It is great. People, like, <laughs> it, it's very easy. Part of what makes uh, the idea that Die Hard is a Christmas movie so controversial is that uh, it can be easy to forget because what you're talking about is like a heist movie with a lot of violence and stuff. So it's important that little moments like that remind you of the real meaning of the season. Now I have a machine gun too. <laughs> <laughs> I got a machine gun for Christmas. Um, yeah, I feel like, okay, two things here. Yes. One, I mean, obviously we're joking a lot about it being a Christmas movie. It mm-hmm. is a an action movie with um, Christmas themes all throughout. And depending on how you define Christmas movie, th- that will determine whether or not this is a Christmas movie mm-hmm. to you. Um, so the question isn't really, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? The question is, what is a Christmas movie? The second point I want to make, and I, I, is sort of a question for you. Okay. You know, the, the Die Hard movie is based on a book. The book itself... It's 
very similar. It's a takeover of, you know, a corporate tower and there's hostages, but there's not this heist twist. Mm. Um, uh, there's also not the, in the book, um, the woman who works at the corporation is the NYPD officer's daughter rather than wife. I think it's very obvious why that shift happens. You know, if you're making a summer blockbuster, even action movies have romance and you want to appeal to all audiences and all that. But the idea that they change the narrative of the book from being about it actually being a terrorist plot um, and they are, they're actually there for, um, like a political agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they switch it to be about it being a heist and being about these bearer bonds. And yep. that's the main motivation. And the, the political idea, ideal part of it is the twist, like what do you think about that? Why did they do that? Why did they adapt the book in that way? Well, like what does, why does that appeal to people? Yeah. Like what's your opinion on that? I basically think, I mean like my, my take on that particular issue is that it is, I, there's, I think there's a, a big sort of meta commentary going on in the movie about how, uh, Nobody really takes anything seriously anymore. It, I think it matters to me that, like, we're not in the 1950s or the 1960s anymore. We're not in the era of sort of the Red Scare. Uh, the The Cold War is still going on, but it doesn't feel quite as ideologically loaded. There might be, like, a historical point to make about how, um, at a certain point, after the 1960s in particular, uh, the Cold War became just the way that the international order worked. And it was like a a matter of sort of technological arms races and literal arms races. So that like you had these two systems who were fighting each other, but through proxy wars with like real violence in uh, South Africa and Angola and Afghanistan and all this kind of stuff. But there wasn't the same kind of, uh, I mean, and there was the omnipresent threat of like, accidental or deliberate sort of nuclear catastrophe, but like a kind of McCarthyite fear that like an alternative ideology to sort of uh, democratic capitalism was going to seduce us away from our true origins and love of freedom and stuff was not quite as in the water as it might have been in sort of an earlier kind of thing. I, I think it just made sense to be like it to. It, it was. It's kind of a heavy-handed way to be like nobody really takes ideology all that seriously anymore. Basically, everybody has realized that, uh, you know, everybody is just out for their own self-aggrandizement, uh, their own sort of benefit maximization. And ideology is one tool among many for those. But like the idea of something like humanitarian justice, political liberation, those are not values that anyone really has any significant stake or belief in, despite the fact that there are literal like wars of liberation going on uh, all throughout the world at exactly the same time. That's, that's my basic take on sort of like, it makes uh, it makes, I mean, 
that's the overall like high level theoretical sort of argument. You could also just basically be like, you know, it's a twist to add to the movie that like this is a way of it becomes a stalling tactic that tactic that Hans Gruber uses. Uh, and then you have like three different sort of things going on at one time in the like there's a there's a there's like a puzzle that has to be solved. They have to figure out how to get the vault open, which is a whole other thing that is taking place alongside a hostage situation and John McClane running around in the building. So it makes for a more exciting movie too, just on like a much more fundamental level is what I think. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Why not both? Why not both? This has been an absolute blast. Love talking to uh, people like yourself who love the the movies that, uh, that uh, we all do. And especially somebody who's seen this as many times as we have. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was uh, an absolute pleasure to talk about it. And uh, yeah, anytime. An absolute pleasure. Well, that's our show. As always, you can subscribe to the pod on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or anywhere else. And we always appreciate reviews, which make us easier for others to find. If you've got feedback for us, email the show at point10pod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Mastodon at point10pod at home.social. We're going to close out season one very shortly with Annie Schultz talking about 1998's You've Got Mail. And then we're going to kick off season two after the new year with 1996's Independence Day and a surprise guest chosen specifically to increase this show's intellectual diversity. Until then, I'm Derek Gottlieb. This is the Point 10 Podcast, and we'll see you next time.